Take out your Bible and open up to the book of 1 Peter. This morning we're going to be looking at the, the last part of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. There's this thing out there, I'm sure you've heard of it, you've probably heard me talk about it in the past, it's called the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that, that as Christians, as, as believers in Jesus, we have this, this God-given right to health and wealth. That Jesus not only died for your sins, but he also died for your prosperity. It's a view that, that usually has a very warped view of prayer. Uh, if you have enough faith, you can ask for whatever you want, and God has to give it to you. And if he doesn't give it to you, that's because your faith is weak. Sees God as this like kind of grandfatherly figure that's waiting to grant all your requests. Uh, and it places a huge amount of value on earthly comfort and wealth. And it's a philosophy that is extremely popular. Right? Because if the guy on TV is saying, hey, there's a way that I can make sure that you're always healthy and that all the sickness is gone and you have as much money as you want and sign me up for that. That sounds great. Yeah, I'll do that. This inherently false gospel really doesn't understand certain things that the Bible talks a lot about, like suffering really doesn't understand things like prayer, and ultimately really doesn't understand true prosperity. This, this letter written by Peter is designed to help us understand those things better. Last week I was uh, in my studies reading about this guy named George Matheson, who was a, a Scottish dude that lived like in the 1800s, had a degenerative disease that caused him to lose his eyesight at about age 18. And in spite of that, uh, probably because of that, he had this incredible insight into suffering and uh, how it connected with God and God's will and God's work. He has a different perspective on prosperity. Here's what he says. He says, ask the great ones of the past what has been the spot of their prosperity. And they will say, it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham. And he'll point to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph, and he'll direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses, and he'll date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, she will bid you build her monument in the field of her toil. Ask David, and he'll tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job, and he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter, and he will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John, and he will give you the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, he will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. Ask one more, the Son of God. Ask him whence has come his rule over the world, and he will answer, 
from the cold ground on which I was lying. The Gethsemane ground. I received my scepter there. Oh man, how amazing. How true. You, you ask any of the saints, any faithful servant of God, any obedient child about the things that formed them and taught them and matured them and, and ultimately prospered and blessed them and they will take you back to some pivotal point in their life when through suffering and through failure and through humility and through hardship, God met them there and taught them there and grew them there. As crazy as it sounds, their prosperity came through the kinds of things that the rest of this world would consider poverty. Their success was born from the kinds of things that threatened to make them failures. And how, how is that possible? Why is it like that? Why is it this way? I think it's because it's through those times of suffering and failure that we learn what true prosperity is. We discover things that are more precious than health and wealth. That the greatest prosperity is being united with Jesus Christ. And the greatest wealth is losing every single thing that this world values and counting it all as rubbish. The greatest health comes from something that, that truly matters. Living for things that are so much more valuable than the things of this world. The greatest glory doesn't come from us. The, the greatest glory is that which is revealed through Jesus Christ. It's, it's this view of prosperity. It's it's this understanding of success. It's this, this idea that it's through the fires of tribulation that we discover what really matters that Peter holds out to us. It's, it's this uh, that he's offering to us as an encouragement, as a hope that through it, God's there and we can trust him and ultimately we can rest in Christ b because of this truth. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls 
to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. The first thing that Peter wants us to to hear in the midst of pain and suffering is, listen, don't freak out. Don't worry. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you're going through. And the language that he uses here is very similar to the imagery that he's used back in chapter 1. I don't think he's implying that they're necessarily going to go through actual flames, but that the mockery and the abuse and the suffering that they face has this, this refining effect on them. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he said, in, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised at the refining fires that you face. They come upon you for your testing, Peter says. Uh, same exact word that he used uh, back there in, in chapter 1, verse 7, he uses here to talk about the refining of gold by fire. And in the same way, we're refined through those ordeals that we face. The purpose, though, is to refine us, right? It's to show what we're made of. It's to reveal the authenticity of our faith. It's, it's, it's there that, that in that crushing, God is making new wine. Just like all those passages that we looked at the last uh, few weeks that talk about how trials help to produce in us endurance and perseverance. They shape us and mold us. Make us better. So don't be surprised when things happen that are painful. But we are, right? We are surprised. We're still caught off guard. It still surprises us. And, and listen, we might not subscribe to the prosperity gospel, but we still kind of think, maybe a little bit, that as good Christians, we shouldn't have to deal with the same kind of pain and suffering and that, that everybody else has to deal with, right? Maybe a little bit. <sighs> I mean, good Christians are never going to face slander and, and, and mockery from schoolmates and colleagues, right? Uh, good Christians never have to face any kind of marital strife or conflict. Our marriages are always going to be easy and perfect, right? Uh, good Christians never have children that sin. All of our kids are angels. Uh, good Christians never lose their jobs, never have money problems. I think we know that bad stuff is going to happen even to good Christians. I think we know that because we know that we live in a fallen world that's messed up and it's broken. And we know that we're not immune for, from those hardships of life. In fact, in some ways, we're maybe more susceptible, more likely to face them. Because we have this, this enemy, this very real enemy 
that's actively trying to tempt us and to discourage us and to convince us that, that we're not worth what God says we're worth and we're not who, who God says we are. And, and because we live in a world that's just very hostile, filled with people who are very hostile to the things of God. And, and, and it, they're not content with just like ignoring us and leaving us alone. No, that, There's this active hate against any worldview that says that there is a God and that there is an objective standard of right and wrong and that morality exists outside of what we decide is right. That idea is just hated. So, so no, we, we shouldn't be surprised, but sometimes we still are, which I think is the reason why Peter writes this. Don't be. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. As though something strange and unusual was happening to you, right? Like, and I don't think Peter's telling this just to like bum us out. Hey, everything's going to be hard. Sorry. Now, even in the way that he communicates this truth to us, reminds us, that, that God is there and it reminds us of His presence. He, even these like true, hard words are infused with encouragement and hope. It's a, it's a refining fire that we face, not a destroying fire. It's not meant to ruin us. And, it, and it's not a strange thing. In other words, like it's, it's normal. You're, you're normal, everybody. <laughs> it's, not, it's not happening because God is mad. It's not happening because when you prayed about it, you just didn't have enough faith, and so he's not really going to answer your prayer. No, that's, that's not it. Don't freak out. Don't fret. It's normal. And not only are we supposed to not, not be surprised, not freak out, Understand that, that the things that we got to face are, are a normal part of God's plan and God's will, and He's there. Peter goes on to say, no, even beyond that, we're to rejoice in it. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. This is one of those like continuous action kind of things. Keep doing it always, over and over again. Keep on rejoicing. Keep on worshiping. Keep on praising God. So that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation because, keep on rejoicing, because when Christ does come back and we, and we see, oh man, it, it was worth it. It was true. When we understand things more, our rejoicing is going to be even greater then. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, Peter says you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I, I think I'm getting this. Like it's, it's, we're almost done with the book, but I think I'm finally starting to understand what Peter is trying to communicate to us here. Because if, if what our like Scottish friend George Matheson said is true, that, that true prosperity is born out of adversity, then when we're faced with suffering, we can rejoice. Because the suffering is going to help me understand Jesus better. It's going to draw me closer 
to the God that I love. It's... It's not because we like to suffer, right? That's not it. That's weird. That's like masochism. That's not it at all. We don't enjoy hardships. We we aren't celebrating the pain part. But we're celebrating the work that we know God is going to do through it. We're celebrating the opportunity to be united with Christ more. We're rejoicing in the fact that ultimately God will be glorified. So when our eyes are fixed on Christ, when we suffer, what we'll see is Him. Not not us, not our circumstances, not, not our pain, not our difficulty, but we'll see Him. When our hope is an eternal hope, then even during the, the pain of this world, we will not lose even an an ounce of that hope. I think that's what Peter has been trying to tell us all throughout this letter. Just like Jesus proclaimed his victory on the other side of his suffering, so will we. To the degree that that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. This means that instead of being uh, intimidated or threatened when people look down on you for believing the Bible, when, when people make fun of you for holding fast to what it teaches, we can rest in Christ and rejoice that we are right where we are supposed to be. Jesus said, Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Peter really is echoing those words of Jesus, right? Verse 14, if you were reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is a very different view of prosperity, isn't it? This is a a biblical, eternal view of prosperity. Uh, So, like, in addition to having, uh, like, I I have a Facebook account and I have an Instagram account that I mostly use to, like, I don't know, brag about my kids and uh, show you all the places that I'm vacationing. That's kind of what I use that for. I also have a Twitter account, which is really different than those other two. Like Twitter is, is uh, it's like faster. The other two, it's more about following people that you know and connecting with, with people that are friends. Twitter is about following things that are interesting. And uh, a lot of it's following people that I, that I don't know. And uh, it's, it's just a very different kind of social media format. Um, and I, I follow a lot of like other 
pastors, a lot of ministry blogs, a lot of articles there that, that helps keep me connected. Because I, sometimes when, like, you're the pastor of a, a small church in a small town, you can, like, not what's, know what's going on in the rest of the world. And so that kind of helps me get plugged in. Because I'll, I'll hear on Twitter about all the, like, heresies and theological controversies that are swirling out there really quickly through that. And one of the things I've noticed in the past few years in particular is that things are getting more and more polarized. And, and not just politically. I think we've all seen how polarized things have become politically. But, but even with different denominations and different religious philosophies, and I've seen more and more that, that pastors, churches, people uh, who hold to a conservative theology with a literal hermeneutic and a complementarian view of women have been absolutely demonized. Like there's, there's no more like dialogue or healthy debate about what the Bible says anymore. No, it's, it's far more common just to see people calling names and attacking character. And it's kind of this whole, like, think like we think and, and believe what we believe or else, or else you're evil. And again, I think maybe I'm a little bit sheltered from that because uh, this is a kind of a conservative farming community. And so that's not as big of a problem, maybe. But man, I have colleagues in other parts of this state, colleagues in cities that aren't too far away from this one who are pressured constantly to conform and to change and to compromise. And what makes this so much harder is the attacks don't just come from the outside. It's not just coming from atheists who are anti-God, but it's coming from people who are Christians. Uh, people who, uh, who unfortunately, though, have been blown around by every doctrinal wind and who really, really want to be relevant to our current culture. People who just can't stand to be reviled for the name of Christ. I don't want anybody to not like me. So, And, and if they start to believe that narrative that like, ah, good is bad and bad is good. And it's, it's really easy to start getting confused when people start calling you names and deriding you. If you believe in the inspired Word of God and hold fast to the truth of the Word of God and live a way that's, that's grounded on the truth of God's Word, then you will be eventually reviled. You will be pressured to change your mind. You will be told that the way that you think and that you believe and the way that you understand God's Word is old-fashioned and wrong. It's not true anymore. You'll be mocked for thinking that it still means the same thing that it, it used to mean. When that happens, don't freak out. Don't be surprised. Instead, just rejoice in being united with Christ, even if it makes you unpopular with some people. Rejoice and, and, and do not 
Do not for a second be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't let people shame you into denying what the truth of God's Word says because they will try. Peter says in verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. There are plenty of reasons why you might suffer. Plenty of reasons why you might feel some pain. It might be a punishment for wrongdoing that you've committed and now you're going to face prosecution from the government. That might be a reason why you suffer. Or you might be suffering because of some sort of discipline from God. Or you might be suffering alienation from other people because you're a troublesome meddler and nobody wants to hang out with you. That's what Peter says. Don't suffer for those reasons. Those are bad reasons to suffer. And during those times, you should be ashamed of your behavior. And you should take whatever punishment and suffering you earn. Again, there's, there's plenty of people on Twitter who are theologically correct, but they're also ungracious and argumentative and unloving, and they just want to pick fights, and they're not helping. They should be ashamed. But we don't need to be ashamed for suffering as a Christian. We don't need to be ashamed for standing firm on that solid ground. Instead of being ashamed, Peter says, glorify God that you get to be called a Christian. Glorify God that people want to identify us with Him. Don't be ashamed. Again, I think that this is such important advice for us because there is a lot of compromise and shifting. And and I think a lot of it happens for this very reason. Because when we let other people shame us, when we start to question who, who should we Listen to who should we follow it causes all kinds of problems in our lives. That shame and that insecurity and that fear of people not liking us causes us to question who we are and who we belong to and where we're headed. And that's the whole reason why Peter writes this is to remind us of who we are and who we belong to and where we're headed. So... Don't be ashamed if people call you a Jesus freak, right? That might happen. Uh, don't be ashamed if people accuse you of, of believing in this ancient book. Yes, I do. <laughs> don't be ashamed of who you are as someone who obediently follows and serves Jesus Christ. Instead, give God the glory. Uh, Peter ends this chapter with a reminder that judgment is coming for everyone. Uh, like for us as well as the rest of the world, we don't really have to worry about that because of where we stand with Christ. He ends with this, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. When we suffer, don't be surprised. Don't freak out. Don't worry. 
Don't be ashamed. Instead, just, just rest. Rest in God. Trust Him. I, again, that's really the whole point of this letter is to help calm us down. But Peter can't just say, hey, calm down, because that never works, right? <laughs> Simply entrust your soul to a faithful creator and rest in him. God isn't far away. He hasn't abandoned you. God's word is still true. Just as true as it's always been. There's still objective truth and morality. And it, and it comes from him. Not, not from us. So rest in him and keep doing what is right. What does that look like? I think one of my favorite examples of this from Scripture uh, is in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas are arrested for talking about Jesus and they are beaten and they are thrown into the middle of the prison and they're shackled and while they're there in the middle of the night, what are they doing? Are they grumbling? We don't deserve to be here. We, this is horrible. I can't. What are they doing? They're singing. They're praying and they're singing and worshiping God. And there's the earthquake and everything shakes and all the shackles fall off and the doors swing open and the jailer thinks, oh no, they've escaped. So he grabs his sword and he's going to kill himself because I'm going to be in so much trouble. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all here. It's cool. We're all, we're all here. Don't worry. The jailer falls to his knees and said, oh, what do I have to do to be saved? God, give us that kind of peace to be able to worship you and praise and sing in the midst of our struggling and strife. And when people come to you and ask, why are you doing that? Why are you so different? Why are you so weird? You could tell them, it's because of Jesus. When they ask you, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to have that peace and that rest? Point them to Christ. God, I pray that that is true. Lord, thank You that it's through those times of pain and suffering that You work in us, that You bring about true prosperity in our lives. Our desire is that, that You would conform us into the image of Your Son. That we would be able to be closer to Him. Closer to You, God, knowing that You're right there and that You're, you're by our side, that You walk through us, uh, with us through the, those times of suffering. That when we feel pressed in on and crushed, You're doing something good. You're making new wine. You're... God, so help us to trust You. Help us not to worry, not to freak out, not to be ashamed of who we are and who You are, Lord. Help us not to fear anything. Because You are a God who is loving and gracious and mighty. May we trust You through all things, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.